the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And then in Matthew chapter 9, <clears throat> verse 35, it may sound a bit redundant, but the point is to help you see that redundancy is important. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So Matthew wants us, God's people, to understand this is what Jesus was doing. And then in Matthew 24 and verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And then if you would, um, Romans 1, uh, beginning in verse 1, we'll read verses 1 through 6, um, and, and there, there we read, and again, I'm reading from the uh, English Standard Version, for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to uh, the flesh, and was declared, or the NIV puts, appointed to be the Son of God in power, uh, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, as we seek to understand the message of the gospel, help us to hear with ears that are guided by your spirit and hearts that he helps us to, in which he helps us to understand. And through these truths of scripture, transform our lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this morning we're going to start with a game. Anyone like games? A little bit? Uh, we're going to play Jeopardy. Anyone like Jeopardy? Got some Jeopardy? I don't. Um, but that's okay. We're playing Jeopardy anyway. It's not, you know, um, it doesn't really matter whether I like it because it works. Now, the way Jeopardy works is you hear the answer and then you got to come up with the question, which is why I don't like it. That seems stupid to me. But anyway. <laughs> um, but, but anyway. I don't know. But here's, here's our first, uh, first answer. The proclamation of a new ruler who will bring about peace and justice among the governed. The proclamation of a new ruler who will bring about peace and justice among the governed. And so what is the gospel? What is the gospel? That's right. See, gospel, it, it, we often hear because... Gospel is good news because it's, if you just break down the compound Greek word, you have good proclamation. I mean, it, news works, okay, we'll talk about that a bit, but good proclamation. Uh, but that's different than the meaning of the word. That's the breakdown of its sort of construction, but that's different than the meaning of the word. Try pineapple and figure that one out. I mean, the meaning of pineapple is quite different than pine and apple, uh, as the case may be, but... In the first century, uh, this good proclamation was a particular kind of good proclamation. Uh, it was a proclamation of a new ruler or king who brought about a, a changed way of life. Now, it also was any decree that that, that ruler would give would be a part of his euangelion, his gospel. And, and, of course, if there was victory or triumph in a war, that would, the, the report of that would also be 
a, a euangelion, a gospel, but it was a particular kind of good news. It wasn't just generic good news, and that's important to recall as we think about what the gospel is. Have you ever wondered this as you read maybe the gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke in particular? Uh, is the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus preached, uh, that he proclaimed, that John the Baptist you know, began to speak about, and that the disciples went about Israel proclaiming, is that the same gospel that we are to proclaim? You ever wondered that question before? Because when I'm reading what they're proclaiming, it, it kind of strikes me, this doesn't seem like what I'm often taught to proclaim, and, and it seems a bit different than that, and so what is that? Well, according to what we read in Matthew 24, 14, it is in fact the gospel of the kingdom that will be proclaimed throughout the world after Jesus' death and resurrection. So yes, it's at least supposed to be the same gospel that is proclaimed throughout the world. Are you tracking with me? It's supposed to be according to what the gospels teach us. And... Um, Gospel is a word we throw around a lot. Gospel this, gospel that, gospel the other. Um, and churches even split over whether one remains true to the gospel or doesn't. Though what they are splitting over is not always the gospel itself. Okay, so we have one more Jeopardy round before we get into the what is the gospel uh, sort of thing. So, one more. Here's the answer. Are you ready? And by the way, I'll, I'll give you a hint. This is a person, so the, answer, the question will be, who is, and then fill, fill it in. Okay, so this man's coming was considered by many to be a day which we may justly count as equivalent to the beginning of everything because it restored the shape of everything that was fa failing and deteriorating. His birthday was the beginning for the world of the gospel, and therefore they devised a way to honor him by beginning the count of time over, beginning it over with his birth. Who is? Incorrect answer. And yes, it was a trick. But what I was reading was actually a quote from uh, first century B.C., Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar. And, and, and so my point in bringing that out is that, of course, you know that all those things we would say about Jesus, right? right? We'd say all that about Jesus. But that's because the gospel about Jesus is, in fact, using that word gospel in the same way they did in their time, the gospel about Augustus Caesar or any other ruler that they thought would be wonderful. And so if we want to understand the gospel, we have to begin to think in those terms, because it wasn't a 21st century English word, it was a 1st century uh, Greek word that was being used at the time, so we have to begin to understand how they understood it. So, a gospel was news of a divine ruler's birth, they considered Augustus Caesar to be divine or deity, or the news of that ruler's coming of age, or that ruler's enthronement. And also his speeches, decrees, and acts are glad tidings which bring fulfillment to the longings of the world for justice and peace. The key difference between the New Testament gospel and the Roman imperial, imperial cult's gospel is two things, the content of the message and the one about whom the news is being proclaimed. The content of the message and the one about whom the news is being proclaimed. But the idea of a gospel itself remains the same, what a gospel is. It's utilizing that idea in communicating the message about Jesus. 
What is the gospel? What is this kingdom message? Well, we're going to explore the answer to that, that under three headings. The gospel is about a powerful king. The gospel is a public proclamation. The gospel is about Christ's governance of our life. Our life. The gospel is about a powerful king. It's a public proclamation, and it's about Christ's governance of our life. So let's begin under that first heading, which, by the way, I will spend. Don't get worried when I go a long time in the first point. It is by far <laughs> the longest of the points uh, that I have this morning. But that's because it's where we're going to do the theological heavy lifting, if you will, and then we'll make application in the second two points. So the gospel is about a powerful king. There are a number of ways one could say this. We could say it's about a powerful prince, because in some countries, prince is the highest ruler of that city. They don't use king, they use prince. I mean, there's a number of ways we could describe it. Human offices, which people of that time could relate to. Reality is, we don't relate to kings very well. We try to figure out what it is that you know, governs our life. We have to come up with other answers to that, because it isn't that. But it's important to recognize that it's a metaphor. When, when Scripture uses human terms like that, as Calvin pointed out, God is speaking as one might stoop to talk in a childish manner to a baby or a child. And quoting Calvin, Such modes of expression, therefore, do not so much express what kind of being God is as accommodate the knowledge of Him to our feebleness. In other words... To call God a king is only a way to help us in our feeble understanding of how things work, of who God is. But what you can't do is import every idea that we have about kings or every idea we have about rulers and import that into who God is. And that, that becomes especially important when we start talking about the kingdom of God. Because now what's happened in church history too many times to tell is that people import all the material, uh, I'm sorry, uh, all the, the um, uh, militaristic ideas of a kingdom into the kingdom of God, and they think we're supposed to go about forcing the world to live under the reign of Christ with guns or maybe previous to that, spears and knives and whatever it may have been, but through battle. So you can't, you have to remember this is a metaphor. It's not, you, we can't import every idea that we have with the human idea into God's kingdom. It isn't telling us what kind of being God is. It's accommodating the feebleness of our understanding to understand something about God. You tracking with me? Okay, so to say that, that God is a king is the closest human concept of his role in our life as a people. The same is true for kingdom. It's we are a, a people under the reign of someone. That person is God or Christ in this case. Um, but Christianity is not just an alternate path toward world domination. Uh, when, it, when it tries to become an alternate path toward world domination, it has already bowed its knee to Satan. Jesus intends to fill the role in our life that people of their day would have assigned to a king. Uh, and people of our day may assign to a whole political system, for example, democracy, others, communism. They're looking for some utopia in something. And for us, that thing which we, that has governance over our life is through our King, Jesus Christ. He is our ruler. Uh, the story about such a ruler's arrival on the scene and ascension to power is called a gospel. 
The story about Jesus Christ coming in ascension to power is called the gospel. The distinction between a gospel could be about any ruler, but when we come to Christ, it's the gospel. The gospel is the story of Jesus' arrival and ascension to rule over everything in heaven and earth. This helps us understand why the four accounts of his story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what are they called? The Gospels. Not because they didn't have some other name to give them. I don't know, what do you think? I don't know, you know, Gospel, I know it's something else, but let's just call it that. No, because that's what they are, is the story of Christ coming and, and life and ascension to power and his rule and reign. They are Gospels. And they most clearly can identify for us the the completeness, if you will, of the gospel. Um, It also explains why Paul, in the text we just read, when he describes the gospel, describes key events in Jesus' coming and ascension to power. So in Romans 1, verses 1 through 6, we have Paul's summary of the gospel to the Romans. Verse 2. Uh, or, or in verse 1, he calls it the gospel of God, which he then goes on to describe beginning in verse 2, which, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. So, part of the gospel, Christ's coming was predicted in the Scriptures. Verse 3, concerning his son. Okay, God, gospel of God concerning his son. Well, son of God is a title, and you see it all the way back in Psalm 2 that is associated with God's king. Uh, Augustus, for instance, was called a son of God. But, but all the way back in Psalm 2, the coming Messiah is referred to as God's son. Today you are my son. You know, th- this communication, which means he is his anointed one, his king. Um, uh, today I've begotten you, Psalm 2 goes on to say. So, and then, who was descended from David according to the flesh? Or... NIV kind of interprets it for us as, as to his earthly life. That's a fair understanding of what it means according to the flesh. Who has descended from David. So the promised one, the coming Messiah of the Jews, is going to be the descendant of David. So Jesus fulfills the prophecies. And as to his earthly life, he was the son of David and therefore the king of the Jews. Verse 4. And was declared or appointed to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now he's moved from merely king of the Jews to king of the universe, king of the world, everything in the cosmos. Okay, By his resurrection from the dead, when the spirit declares him the son of God in power. And according to other verses, he actually declares him such by the verses in Psalm 2. Today, uh, uh, I have begotten you. You are my son. Today, I have begotten you. The Spirit enacts that word to cause Jesus to be birthed from the tomb as the reigning king of the universe. And then, of course, 40 days later, he uh, ascends to the right hand of God where he rules over everything in heaven and on earth. So you have... Really there in verse 4, you have resurrection and ascension wrapped all together into one. And then notice how Paul describes the work of the gospel. Verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. Do you see the kingdom language in there? Paul's ministry 
was to call all the nations or peoples of those nations to the obedience that comes from faith or faithfulness is another way one could translate that or loyalty. Uh, some have offered the, the translation from allegiance. And anytime that word pistos, faith, is used in reference to kings, it's often translated allegiance. So when we get to the New Testament, we need to at least consider that as part of loyalty, commitment to, devotion to, other ways to describe that word. The obedience that grows out of faith, that grows out of this devotion to, not just growing out of some belief in a set of facts, I believe, yes, he's the son of God, but a devotion, a committed belief, a, a loyalty to Jesus Christ. There is an obedience that is to grow out of that. It comes from faith for his name or for his cause. Why? Because kings have a cause. They have a purpose. They have a rule. And for his namesake, we might say for his cause. Uh, Paul also describes the gospel similarly to the Corinthians. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, he describes it as Again, sequence of events in the history of Jesus. So notice this. Now, Paul writes in verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So, according to those verses, what follows, what he's about to say is the gospel that he preached, the gospel in which they stand, and the gospel by which they are being saved, if they hold fast to that very word. So what is the gospel? Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the one time, most of whom are still alive, through whom, uh, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. Of God. It is interesting to me that Paul found himself unworthy to be called an apostle, though he clearly was an apostle. And there's a lot of people today that find themselves very worthy to be called an apostle, though, though nobody seems to have thought so outside of them. So, I, you know, I, I digress. I should not, but I digress. Um, Paul's key point in that chapter, Romans 15, if you read the rest of the chapter, is that the resurrection is certain, it is sure. So when he's telling the gospel story, what does he highlight? He highlights the aspects of the gospel that support the resurrection. But notice that he skips some parts that he would have included elsewhere, but he skips, well, doesn't mention the birth of Jesus. He doesn't mention anything about his earthly life. He starts right at his, what, death. He died for our sins according to the scripture. Now, why would he do that? Well, because his point is resurrection. The first thing you have to do in order to have resurrection is what? Death. You have to have a dead person to have a resurrection. So that's where he begins. And then everything he does from there, he gets to the resurrection. And then he goes on to people who saw him after that, which are the proofs of that resurrection. Okay. So he does truncate it. And we often will find times when we might truncate the gospel for a particular purpose. Let's take a piece of the story and expand on that piece of the story. But it is still an historical story. It's historical. It's about events in time and space that God was acting through. All things were made by him. 
So he goes back to Genesis 1.1, the very first point in history, and, and says, oh, by the way, pre-existent to that, everything is made by him and for him. So he, he kind of backs us off of what we think of as history and says even before that, this existed. So that then when he gets to the incarnation, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. He's telling us who was incarnated. So he brings us back and then he jumps into the incarnation and into his earthly life. So Peter, in, in Acts chapter 10, remember Peter goes to Cornelius' house and he's sent by this vision to share the gospel with Cornelius' house. What does he share? Well, we get there, and he introduces it as, quote, the word which God sent to Israel, literally we would, could translate gospelizing or good announcing peace through Jesus Christ. Gospelizing peace through Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to tell uh, or give a summary of the ministry of Jesus, his life, his ministry, the things he did, his death, his resurrection, and his appearances. And he points out that the prophets predicted his coming beforehand, much like Paul did in Romans 1. All of these were the gospel message that he was bringing. But notice in all of these things we've just read, that the gospel is not about you or me, first and foremost. I'm not saying it doesn't have impact and effect for you and me. I think that's vital. The gospel is about what God has done in Jesus Christ, what Jesus is and what he is doing and accomplishing. That's the subject of the gospel. So if we put all these parts together to get a fairly complete picture, and I say fairly because one could nuance it in a number of directions, we might say that the gospel is the message of God's action in Christ performed within the framework of history, and it incorporates these things. His incarnation... Now, in incarnation, I'm including pre-existence as well. So that's part. Or anointing as king, that's what his baptism was. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit who came down upon him. That, that, that's a picture in the Old Testament of the king being anointed for office. So that happened to Jesus. So he's, he's a king. That's why the Gospels generally get going right there with his baptism. His earthly life. Thirdly, his death on the cross, his suffering on behalf of his people. That certainly defines what kind of king he is, and it's a very different king than any king in the world. Kings in the world, people, their people suffer on behalf of the king. King Jesus, he suffers on behalf of his people. Radically opposite in that regard. His resurrection, okay, he triumphs over his enemies through the resurrection. God has de declared him a victor. God has declared a new reign, a new kingdom, a new king through the resurrection. His ascension, or enthronement to, on high to rule, and of course, with that ascension, I might add the sixth part, and they, they, you could merge these together, but I think it should be kept distinct just so that we don't forget it. His reign. In other words, not just that he ascended and sits there, but that he presently rules over our lives, uh, and, and that that reign is available to all. So these are the core elements of what the kingdom message or the gospel is. It's important, however, to realize that Jesus' kingdom is a good proclamation. The news of his kingdom is a good proclamation. It's good because of the effect that his rule has over his domain. It's good because of the effect that his rule has over his domain. And we see that in the Gospels when we look at the ministry of Jesus. 
If we go back to Augustus Caesar, remember where we started earlier? My trick question, sorry. I, I really hate trick questions, especially when I'm duped by them, so I can only beg your forgiveness. But Augustus Caesar's reign was good news. It was a gospel because he brought the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana in Latin, the peace of Rome. Now, the peace of Rome is the, the peace of earthly kingdoms. It's peace at the end of a sword or under threat of execution. Peace kept by crucifixion of anyone deemed a threat to its power. That's the peace of Rome. What we see in the Gospels are long descriptions of the effect of Jesus' rule. And it wasn't the peace of Rome. It's a different kind of peace. He released people from their sins. He restored people to walking, seeing, hearing, sanity, relationships, and purity. These were all the effect, if you will, of His rule in their lives. The promised coming of a child to be born, the gospel promised beforehand in the Holy Scriptures, as Romans 1 puts it, is expressed as the effect of His rule over His dominion. Notice this in Isaiah 9. We've been quoting this, it seems like, every week for a month now, the Advent season, and now we're going into January, but it's so crucial to understanding the kingdom itself. But Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Sar Shalom, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it, with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now, I'm going to leave that up on the screen because i got a question about this. And so let's, I want answers. So I'm going to, it's time for you to talk, okay? So if you get yourself ready, kind of warm yourself up, get your vocal cords warming up, whatever you need to do. But here's the question. What effects of his kingdom do you see expressed in those verses? What effects of his kingdom? If we're going to describe the kingdom effects, the effects of this child coming, what does it look like they would be? What's that? Power. Okay. Justice, righteousness, shalom, peace, right? What else? Wisdom, right? Because he's wonderful counselor. Right, excellent. So, so in other words, we, a wonderful counselor is a title, but it speaks of an effect, Right? He gives wisdom to our lives where we are often foolish. What else? What else do we see? Everlasting. His everlasting father, right? <laughs> He's, it seems so odd that a child could be born that is the everlasting father, but what's the effect that comes from everlasting father? It's this, this comfort, this awareness that we belong to someone and something beyond ourselves and beyond space and time, which leads to, of course, eternal life. And we talk about all of that. What else do we see as the effect of his kingdom? Anything else? Justice? Did I hear justice? Right, yeah, justice. Isn't the world crying out for justice today? Well, there's all sorts of forms of justice, but this justice is true justice. It's the only one that can bring about, but it can be had only in the kingdom of Christ. Not that we, we don't care about justice in any other realm. We do because we care about God's justice, period. The gospel is more than generic good news. 
In other words, it isn't just gospel that, oh, this is some great thing that happens. Well, there's good news. Well, no, it's not generic good news. It's a particular kind of good news. It's the proclamation of a new era, a new reign, the reign of Jesus Christ over all the earth. So it's, it's about a powerful king, if you will. Secondly, the gospel is a public proclamation. Now, when I say the gospel is a public proclamation, it may conjure up pictures of people on the street corner with a megaphone shouting to the crowds of disinterested passerby, passersby, interrupting their pleasurable walk in the park. Anyone ever seen that before? It's not hard. Just go down by the pier. You'll see it often. While we might think of that as a modern-day John the Baptist, in, in order to achieve the baptizer's M.O., one would actually have to go to a desolate place and wait for people to come to you, you know, them seeking how they might get their lives right with God. Because John was in a wilderness and dressed rather strangely, and people still came to him, which is a mesmerizing thought. But don't let public proclamations suggest the megaphone picture. However... When a new ruler rises to power and offers such a transformed way of life and living, one cannot light a candle and put it under a basket or keep it to themselves for two reasons. One, its purpose is to light the whole house. Jesus as a light came not just to rule over us that gather on Sunday morning at 555 76th Avenue North or any other address of a church here in town, and there are plenty of them. But his goal is to rule over everything in heaven and earth. And that is great news for everyone in heaven and earth. And so it is a public proclamation. It is a public proclamation. Which is why, of course, at a minimum, we welcome anyone to come in here and, and hear that good news. We don't think, oh, well, what's your life like? Are you really, I mean, this is, no. We welcome all to come in. But it goes beyond that. Its purpose is to light the whole house. Secondly, if you cover up the light, it will put out the light. If it is not a public proclamation, it becomes nothing. It goes out. That's the end of the light. We can't hide it. That's how candles work, if you're familiar with the concept. You know, candles snuffer. You know, you put it on there, it dies. So, a great little tool. Um, when one truly believes the gospel, they spread it abroad. Now, I want to look at Luke for a moment. If you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 5, if you have your Bible. It will be on the screen. But let's read beginning in verse 15. It's a story you might be familiar with. But now, we read beginning in verse 15 of Luke 5, But now even more, the report about him, that's Jesus, went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. Now, Luke earlier has told us that this is the gospel of the kingdom. In fact, the angel Gabriel, in announcing to Mary that she would give birth to a son, quotes, basically references Isaiah 9, verse 6, about a child or a son given, and that's what he's, that would reign, whose government would, would be over all. He references that, and so Luke's gospel is about that same announcement. So this report about Jesus goes abroad. Great crowds gather to hear him to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. One of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of, of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were praying on a bed. Or, or, I'm sorry, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed 
And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. The report about Jesus, the report about the effect of his reign on the lives of the people spread so widely that crowds gathered to hear him. Let me just say that again because I, I, I don't want us to miss the significance of that statement. The report about the effect of Jesus' reign on the lives of the people that gathered to hear him spread so widely that crowds gathered to hear him. No one had to get a megaphone and shout to the disinterested. People were clamoring to get in, not because someone negotiated with them that if you come to church with me, I'll do something you want for you. Never had that kind of negotiation. I'd love to get, I'll go to your church with you, and then you come to my church with me first. And then they stayed there. They never came back, so. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Seemed to be happy, got married, worked out pretty well for him. But it's not a negotiation. But it was because they heard about the way Jesus' kingdom was impacting the lives of those who came into it. Healing whatever weaknesses they had in their lives. You see, gospel doesn't mean good information. It's not good news in the sense of good information. It is not news as something that you can go on a website and find if you're interested. It's News broadcast widely. It's proclaimed news. Good proclamation. A, a proclamation is by nature something heard, something public. In the Gospels, news about Jesus spread everywhere. Why? Well, first it was public. What was spread? The fact that Messiah had come and his kingdom was filled with justice, peace, comfort, forgiveness, healing, restoration to relationships, and transformation of life. From proud to humble, from greedy to generous, from bitter to loving. That news was spreading. Being public has three implications. First, that the gospel has had transformative effect upon the people who have come into its dominion. You have nothing to publicize if the kingdom is not affecting people. So that the gospel has had transformative effect upon the people who have come into its dominion. Second, that we tell people what God has done for us. That we tell people what God has done for us. You don't have to memorize a certain tract of you know, what people need to know in order to believe the right set of facts. You tell people what God has done for you. In the midst of the pandemic, no one worried that people wouldn't know that stimulus checks were coming. It was noised about. <laughs> Have you heard? We're getting like $1,200 a head. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Oh, the PPP loans. Every business owner was calling their friends who owned a business. Are you applying for the PPP? You can get money to pay for your employees. You don't have to lay everybody off. I mean, talk was noised about. Why? Because it was a form of good news. When God's people live under the transforming power of the obedience of the faith, as Paul called it in Romans 1, 
news will spread. And then thirdly, being public has a th uh, three implications. Thirdly, that Jesus' reign is for all people in all places. That Jesus' reign is for all people in all places. And then finally, this last uh, point in the sermon, that the gospel is about Christ's governance of our life. This point is clear in Romans 1 verse 5. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. To the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Since Jesus is a king and the gospel is the proclamation of his coming and ascension to power, the gospel of necessity is about a new authority over how we live our lives. It is about his government and its increase. The gospel has much to say about how we live our lives. To use language some are more familiar with, we could say that we are not under the authority of Moses or the law, but under the authority of Jesus Christ, the one to whom the Mosaic shadow was always pointing. But maybe a clearer picture in our hearing can be had in the rest of the story that start, we started a minute ago with our friend the paralytic. Look with me at verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, human, you might say, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Do you ever wonder what the paralytic was thinking when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven? He hadn't repented of anything. He hadn't admitted that he was a sinner. He hadn't even asked Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. He's just laid in front of him, unable to walk, move, do about anything. The other day I was thinking about how both John and Jesus came announcing the kingdom of heaven, that it has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And then as I'm thinking about these verses, it strikes me. So many other places you see Jesus just announce, your sins are forgiven. He didn't say, repent and believe the good news. Your sins are forgiven. And it struck me that maybe the difference between the kingdom of God coming near versus being present is the forgiveness of sins. When this man is set in front of the king with faith, Jesus seeing their faith says, see, with faith, forgiveness of sins is a present reality. Before this guy has a chance to tell Jesus he wanted something else, like, could you help me get up and walk? He doesn't have a chance to say that. Here's what we read, verse 21. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Of course, we know the answer to that is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why? Because who can prove you right or wrong? Who can prove you right or wrong? But, verse 24, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. You see, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven, but where's the proof? What's the evidence? Church, it's easy to tell people that Jesus has forgiven your sin, but the same question is still begged by the world. Where's the proof? What is the evidence? 
We know that this man's sins were forgiven, but we know that because we know the rest of the story, and we happen to believe in the one who told him that his sins were forgiven. The man is forgiven, but nothing had changed in his life. The way that the people would know that the man's sins were forgiven, that the forgiveness that Jesus proclaimed was real, was if that man's life was transformed by Jesus. He who could not walk at all would take up his mat and go home. And they would know by that that somehow his sins were forgiven. That's how the gospel works. It comes announcing Christ's kingdom. When the announcement is believed, the kingdom is present. And the first thing that happens is the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness is the first value of the kingdom of God. Forgiveness of our sins, which then is to be replicated in our heart toward one another. Forgiveness that frees us from our sins and our slavery to Satan. Forgiveness before anyone gets up and walks is the essence of the gospel when it comes. But that the world might know that such forgiveness is real, those who come into the kingdom of Jesus rise up and walk in His will, in His ways. Where once we were paralyzed to do His will, unable to move an inch, toward the will of God. Now we have lives transformed by the forgiving power of Christ who reigns over all. The gospel is about the government, governance of our life. Not just lives. I, I use life singularly, even though I said our life, on purpose. It would be true to say lives. The gospel has... It's, it's about God's uh, Christ's governance of our lives. That's true enough. But that misses a crucial point. It would miss the fact that those called to belong to Jesus Christ have one life together. It not only changes your individual lives, but it changes our life. How we live together. How we as a people are governed. How we think and act with one another. Our life together is to be lived by the values and ways of Jesus' kingdom, not by worrying about what we will eat, drink, or wear. But life lived seeking first His kingdom, ways, and His righteousness or His justice while trusting that everything we needed will be taken care of. Capitalism may be, be wonderful, but it is not the value of the kingdom. Generosity rooted in being image bearers is the value of the kingdom. That can exist in any earthly economy, and must exist in any earthly economy that God, Christ's followers live in. Amen. This is in closing, just a couple of, of things. If we, God's people, His church, if we begin to understand the gospel in these ways, that the gospel is the story of a powerful king, the gospel is a public proclamation, and the gospel is about Christ's governance of our lives, we may find that our roof needs more repairs. It may be a shame that we don't have leaks in this roof. Because people aren't beating their way in to the point that they're getting on top and digging a hole in the roof. We've, we have to resort, I say we broadly speaking, to megaphones to disinterested people. But would it not be better if we were to live lives utterly transformed by the reign of Christ and then just start telling people what God has done for us. Amen. 
If we come before Jesus as King and Lord, we'll discover forgiveness of sins and transformation of life. And such transformation will cause us to set it on a candlestick to light the whole house. It will become public. Have you heard the good news that a new ruler who operates in a whole new way of doing life has come to rescue us from our participation in the kingdom of darkness? Have you heard that news? He has come. And you can enter his kingdom as you respond to the announcement of his kingdom in faith. By believing that he has come to reign over us in an entirely different way. And rejoicing in his kingship. And in so doing, we receive from the get-go that proclamation, Human, your sins are forgiven. Let's pray.